0: Welcome
1: to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today, we're
0: going to be talking with Jeff Salingo, the author of Who Gets In and Why, A Year Inside College Admissions, which was released in September of this year. But before we talk to him, we're going to talk about our experiences as moms who have sent several kids to college. In fact, I've sent all five of mine and Stephanie's about to finish with her third. So Steph, what's it like the third time? Third time's a
1: charm maybe. No, I don't know. I I would say each kid has been so different. Just different each time. Different approaches, different different things they want, don't want. As far as the process itself and I would say well, this one has certainly been different in that we couldn't go on any tours this spring. So because of the pandemic that totally changed it. It's interesting. I was thinking about that. I'm like, wow, if she was my first that might've pushed me right over, but because she was my third, I don't think it did. It was interesting to watch how it changed her process, I would say, because everything it, and she's a pretty analytical kid. So she may have been doing that anyway, but now everything was not black and white, but on paper, you know, it was really different. It was really different. Like you really had to like research and investigate and check things out, you know, like you had to like unearth things, which I think she kind of liked. I think she kind of liked it. Yeah. So you have to be more creative now, which makes it, it's like a funny shift that could
0: end up being very positive. When my fourth kid was applying to colleges, I decided that the system of visiting colleges before you knew whether you were in or not was a waste of time and money because you could set, you know, you could really invest in a school after you see it as being the place that you can see yourself for the, for your four, next four years and really think that there's nowhere else you could be. And then you don't get in. It's such a weird system. So, we actually
1: only visited colleges after she got in. It worked out really well for her. It's a really different, I mean, the pandemic has certainly gotten rid of the, oh, I've heard the food's really good there, or I, you know, oh, the laundry's included, or you can print for free, you know, all the crazy things the tour guides tell you. So, it took that piece, you know, off the table. Although, you know, laundry in your room is not a bad thing. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> Definitely different. And I think, you know, it has reminded me of just how different each kid is and how they approach things. You know, I was thinking about just the, we were chatting earlier about just the process and how I feel about the college process. And I wish some aspects of it were different, but I'm not somebody who's soured on the process. I'm not someone who's like, oh my God, like this is the worst thing ever. I think that the college process, it is what it is. And I do think a lot of it, does start in the household and how you frame it. And, you know, do you see college and where they go to college as their end game? And I I guess I've never thought that. I've always looked at it as just something along the way. I don't know. It's not, yeah, maybe, I, would say, I don't know, I, is that first generation? I'm, I'm first generation? Do I have a different, it'd be very interesting to compare to others and do they have a, I don't know. I don't know. I did not have that feeling with my first. Yeah. With each subsequent kid,
0: it got, less and less and less. And I was less attached to the outcome and just thought they'll be fine wherever they go. But definitely with my first, I was like a typical first parent who I couldn't breathe the day the decisions were coming out. So how about college tours?
1: When there was a time you could go on college tours, anything funny to report? Yeah. I would say one funny was when we were visiting with our oldest a college of which I was all prepared to like. People were like, you're going to love that tour. I and mean, it's so amazing. And we were really trying to do our best not to show like any, you know, trying to hang back in the tour and not show how you felt about it. And we spent a lot of time there. And my husband and I both did not like it. We didn't like the tour guide. We didn't like it. And we didn't like it for that kid. And... We got in the car to come home. And he's like, so what'd you think? And I'm like, oh, what'd you think? You know, <laughs> trying to really take it off of us. And then a couple of days later, he's like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to apply. And we're like, oh, okay. Well, what'd you think? He's, uh, I don't know. What'd you think? We kept pushing it back. And then he's like, no, I'm not applying. I'm like, are you sure you're not applying? He's like, I'm positive I'm not applying. Sure. Yeah, I'm positive. Good. Yeah, we didn't see you there. We we didn't like it at all. You know, it was hard. It's hard to like play that poker face and just go along. How about you? So I have two funny
0: things about tours. First is the tour I took my oldest daughter on. The first one I went on, we did a friend trip with her friend and the mom who's my friend. My friend and I looked at each other. We said, wow, we have never felt more invisible. I mean, we were like on a college campus for college kids. We thought of ourselves as close in age to them somehow still <laughs> and nobody cared that we were there we were completely completely invisible no one smiles at you the girls get all the attention that was a, a little bit of a jarring moment but my husband had taken my daughter before that to a, her her first tour and he called me up and he said i said how's the tour he said you know, the tour guide was great because all the tour guides are great. They're all, like, personable and great wherever you go. And he said, but there was a mom on the tour who was so incredibly annoying. She had gone to this school, and she just didn't stop talking the whole time about, oh, my God, I did this here, and I did that here, and I majored in that. And and he said, like, he was dying. It was so annoying. And so I said, oh, I'm so glad you told me that story because I was taking my daughter to my college, And that was the following week. And I I thought, oh, I think that might have been me if if you hadn't told me the story. And he said, yeah, that's why I'm telling you the story. (laughs) Such a good one. Yeah. So I spent the entire tour, like literally just kind of zipping up my mouth and just going (laughs) along with this whole tour. And I was so close to the finish line. We were like, three minutes from leaving the university, and I made a comment about having gone there. And I was like, why? So close. So close. So (laughs) close.
1: Well, and I want to go back to something you said earlier, because I think it's a bit unfair. My firstborn is extremely laid back, is the other piece of this. So I think some of how I felt about it also... Just how how he was. Do you know what I mean? So I think I, my my kid was more laid back than I was for okay. sure. Yeah,
0: it was not that. And it, my family doesn't do laid back well. But she was definitely like you know wherever she she actually was happy with all the choices she made in terms of applications. Like wherever she got in, she was going to be feel like it was a good place for her. Yeah, that's how I, I feel. Was where we are now. Extremely invested in that school in like a not healthy way. <laughs> no, but the thing is, then then after that, I did change. So I just don't, I don't want to put out there that my story yeah. has always been who I am today. We all evolve. We all see what the world actually lives, looks like. And, we, and also, I mean, it, it really is a lot of lottery, as you'll hear from Jeff Selengo. And, you know, your kids do the best they can. They can meet, they can tick off every single box of what the criteria are for that university, college, whatever you're applying to, and still not get in. Because everyone else
1: applying looks just like you. Oh, I was going to say, the other thing I think about a lot is how, and I think Jeff may may touch on this too, is if you keep applying, or if <laughs> kids think that there's 12 schools out there, or 20 schools, and so... Those pools keep getting larger and larger, making them more and more competitive. And I remember talking to one of my friends whose oldest is probably a year or two behind my oldest. And she was asking me about the process. And I said, the only thing I can say to you is, just don't apply to the same eight schools everybody else is applying to. Like, if you can help your kid get some schools on their list that are not the same as everybody else's, that can really help the process. And I still stand by that. I think it's good advice. You know, you keep hearing, oh, my God, there's i I'm like, okay, well, then let, let's all stop applying to these same schools. There's 4,000 colleges. Up next is our conversation with Jeff Salingo. We can't wait for you to join us.
0: Today's guest, Jeff Salingo, has written about higher education for more than two decades and is a New York Times bestselling author of three books. His latest book, Who Gets In and Why? A Year Inside College Admissions, was published in September 2020 and was named an editor's choice by the New York Times Book Review. A regular contributor to The Atlantic, Jeff is a special advisor for innovation and professor of practice at Arizona State University. He also co-hosts the podcast Future You. Jeff, thanks so much for being here with us.
2: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: First of all, shout out for the book. It's amazing. It's really, I wish I had been with you in your year of research. So you spent a full year researching for your book at three colleges. You asked, I believe, 24 colleges. Is that true?
2: Yep. Yeah, I asked uh, two dozen and three said yes. And those are the three that ended up in the book. And of course, I was pretty lucky because it was a, a big public, a in University of Washington, a small private liberal arts college in Davidson, and then a a big private urban institution in Emory.
0: So why do you think those three said yes, and why do you think you only got three
2: yeses? (laughs) Well, when I first started putting out the feelers for this in the summer of, of 2018, it was right around the time that Harvard and eventually the University of North Carolina was being sued over their affirmative action policies in college admissions. So I think some colleges were a little afraid of allowing me in to see exactly how the sausage is made for fear of of lawsuits. Others just didn't really wanna give the secrets out to students, even though there isn't necessarily a formula as I lay out in the book. And I think the three colleges that eventually allowed me in are led by seasoned admissions deans who've been there for a long time. They are all highly selective uh, institutions, but they're not uber selective. And so I think that they wanted to show the world what they were doing in, in the hopes of maybe becoming Uber selective because they would get even more applications perhaps from this book. But I think at the end of the day, they were probably very confident in their admissions process because they've been doing it essentially the same way for so long. Do
0: you think that's given them a lift? Have they have you been in touch with them since the book came out? And are they seeing any like response in a positive way for them?
2: It's a good question. I've been in touch with them. I haven't asked that question. I'm afraid to, in some ways, <laughs> ask it. Maybe if they didn't get a lift, that might not say much about the uh, about the book. I think what they were hopeful for, especially like a Davidson, you know, a liberal arts college in the South, which is kind of unusual. Most of their competitors are liberal arts colleges in the Northeast. So I think they were looking for you know a national footprint that this book would get and, and maybe give them more. More exposure, University of Washington, obviously a great public university, but often in the shadow of the University of California campuses on the West Coast. So I think all of them had a a reason for wanting to be in this book.
1: So you touched on this idea of, you know, letting people in on the secret and every parent with a kid applying to college— I may or may not have a senior, um, (laughs) dreams about getting this behind-the-scenes look at the process. So can you tell us a little bit about what the year looked like for you?
2: I was allowed to attend any of the meetings uh, that they were having or any reading sessions that they were having, which essentially happens every day. So the biggest limitation on me was that I couldn't physically be there every day at three different universities in three different cities. So that was one big limitation on me. And the other limitation was that I could not name any of the students. But I got to read their applications, so I couldn't also have anything that would personally identify them. So what I would do is I would go down to each of these places. I would go to each of these campuses for days on end over the course of a couple of months, rotating around the campuses. And I, I would sit with the admission staff, depending on what they were doing at that point. In some cases, they were individually reading applications. In other cases, they were doing team reads of, of applications. They were in committee meetings. They were in what is called near the the end of the process, the shaping process, where they decide uh, when they have too many students in the in the process and they have to decide who to push out of the admit bin and into the into the deny bin or the waitlist bin. So it depended on what time of year it was happening. But, but things move very quickly. I mean, one of the things that I think is surprising to parents and students is just, just how quickly they review these applications that you might spend days, hours, weeks, years, uh, I'm putting uh, putting together, right? Eight to 12 minutes is is probably the average time uh, because in the year I was at Emory, for example, they had 30,000 applications. And four years earlier, they had 20,000 applications. And the one thing that they never figured out how to do is add more days to January and February, which are the, you know, the eight weeks that they're mostly reviewing these applications.
0: Uh, It's actually a really disappointing piece of information for us because our kids are investing. And when you say a week, for kids applying to those schools and more competitive, it's months and months and months of putting those applications together. And then in your book or in in interviews, you have talked about how the essays, which you had a chance to read, are numbingly similar. (laughs) You know, that's something that really... As parents and with our kids, we expect such an investment in time because that's kind of the place where you get the chance to stand out from everybody else who looks identical to you on paper. What does stand out? What's the one that, like, the 12 minutes turns into a conversation and it gets it into a different pile?
2: They cherish, as I say in the book, they cherish what is rare. And what's happening now at most of these highly selective colleges is they're getting applications from many very similar types of students all over the country. This is the big change in admissions over the last 30 or 40 years. Now the smartest kids in Buffalo and Cleveland and South Carolina and Washington State, wherever it is, they're all applying to the same set of 12 schools. And so when you're sitting in these admissions offices, and I I talk about this in the book, you're looking through these applications and you're reading it and you say, didn't I just see this application four or five applications ago? Because Everybody has a 15-something on the SAT. Everybody has a 4.0-plus on the uh, GPA. Everybody's doing all these same activities. The essays sound numbingly similar after a while. It, they, they're perfectly curated to the demise, I think, of these students. And so they're looking for something that stands out. So, for example, STEM majors at Emory, everybody wants to major in the, in the sciences. So they want examples that you are really interested in the sciences. Not by the way that you just took science classes in high school, because everybody did that. Not just because you scored high on the SAT math section, everybody does that. They wanna see, did you volunteer on a research project? Did you volunteer at the hospital? They wanna see examples either in your activities or your community service that you are really invested in pre-med and you're just not wanting to become a doctor, for example, because they make a lot of money or something like that, right? That's what they want to show. And in some cases, it's completely unfair, I think, because at the age of 18, you know, when somebody, when an admissions officer says, well, there's no examples of neuroscience in their application, I'm not quite sure how an 18-year-old could even have an example of neuroscience in their application.
1: So after researching for the book, what's the biggest change you'd like to see in college admissions, given everything you just said?
2: (laughs) I'd like a couple of things to happen. First, at these highly selective schools, they can become bigger. I mean, one of the most disappointing things is that even as application numbers have increased tremendously over the last decade plus in higher ed, especially at these selective colleges. They've essentially remained the same size. And as I point out in the book, the top four colleges and universities in Canada, the top ranked universities in Canada, enroll something like 150,000 undergraduates. To get to that number in the U.S., you would have to go down to number 18 or 19, the top 18 or 19 colleges and universities in the U.S. Enroll that many students, right? So we tend to equate small size to quality in the US at a point when, at a time when more students in the US, because we want more students to go to college and more students around the world are trying to get into higher ed. So there's no reason that they need to be that size. Two other quick things. I would get rid of early decision. I think it really moves up the admissions process way too early in high school, particularly in that in a normal year, in that junior year, and students, I think, need to spend more time enjoying high school. And the last thing I would do is create some sort of national clearinghouse that makes the admissions process much more efficient. Right now you have students applying to eight or 10 schools. They're not quite sure what the schools want. The schools have no idea how many other colleges those students are applying to. It's really inefficient and it really raises everybody's anxiety level. So what if we had some sort of national clearinghouse, somewhat like the matching system that we use for uh, doctors coming out of medical school for their residencies? And now students can see, here's what institutions are looking for. They're looking for more kids from Montana, for example. Well, I'm from Montana and I want to go there. And now here are the colleges that I, here's what I'm looking for in a college. And there's more transparency on both sides that I think can make the admissions process much more efficient.
1: You mentioned early decision and how that moves up this whole process in the kids' year, in their senior year. And yet there was a lot written about, this year, about more kids applying early and more and colleges trying to lock in their classes. And so while I agree with what you're saying, it almost feels like the colleges are going the, the, in the other way direction. And, <laughs>
2: and in fact, that's that is the advice that I gave this year, right? that I, I knew colleges would lean into early decision much more than in the past because it gives them certainty in a very uncertain world. And as I point out in the book in 2008, during the Great Recession, that hit in the fall of 2008. And that's the, that is the year that colleges that might've been accepting about 25% of their applicant pool early decision went up to close to 50% in many cases, some even higher. Um, and they never pulled back. And I, I can imagine the same thing. They don't have as much room as they had in 2008 because they can't really accept you know 95% of their class early. I guess they could, but they don't want to. And so I think we're gonna start to see that this year as, as well.
0: So there's also a lot of discussion about standardized tests, SAT, ACT. So many schools this year, by necessity, went test optional. And even I think the California system is test blind. Can you explain the difference between those things and what you see? Like, what's that going to look like going forward?
2: So test optional means that students have the option to submit test scores and colleges have the option to consider them in the admissions process. Test blind means Colleges don't want the scores and they're not going to look at them in the admissions process. Test optional is a really fuzzy concept because even before the pandemic, there were more than a thousand colleges and universities that are test optional. So let's take one of them, the University of Chicago, which before the pandemic was the most selective college that was test optional. Even in a normal year, they were 85% of their applicants would submit a test score. So if you're an applicant out there or a potential applicant to the University of Chicago, you're gonna like, wow, I better get a test score in there because I don't want to be among that 15% that doesn't have a test score because you think, especially if you have a good score, that's going to push you over, over the finish line. The big difference this year is in talking to admissions deans so far, now we're only in the fall, so we're very early in the process, in the selection process, is that the number of submitters is way down. So for example, I'm talking to colleges that before the pandemic were test optional and they might have been getting 60, 70, 80% of their students submitting test scores. They're now down under 30%. You cannot admit a class when you're only looking at 30% of the applicant pool. So this when they say test optional this year, they really mean it. So if you've been suspicious of it before, they really mean it this year. So where is this going from here? Well, first of all, if you if you're a college and your test optional maybe only for this year, and you now enroll a class without using the SAT for the most part, or the ACT for the most part, and you are successful in enrolling in that class, it's going to be really hard, I think, to go back. It's also unclear what testing is going to be like in the spring. Are students going to be able to take juniors now in particular? Are they going to be able to take the SAT and ACT? And if they're not, many of these schools that went test optional for one year, meaning for the class of 2021, are now going to have to extend that for another year for 2022. And the longer they do that, I think the harder it is to go back.
1: So in addition to testing, what other speculation do you have post-pandemic in terms of college admissions?
2: I think some things will will change. I think testing is obviously the, the big one. I think colleges during this year will get a sense of what really matters because I know a lot of parents and students out there are really worried. They're like, well, I didn't really get grades in the spring or my activities were canceled. There's gonna be a lot of disruption to the applications they get this year. And they're going to have to review them in a different way. And I think in reviewing them, they're gonna learn some things. They're going to learn what really matters in the application. And so I think you might see them say, you know what, we don't need to have them list 10 activities. We don't need them to have two supplemental essays in, in, in addition to the real personal statement. Maybe we don't need as many recommendations, whatever it might be. So I think we might see a slimming down. I hope we might see a slimming down of the uh, of the application. The other big change that I think is going to happen is around the college search itself and visiting campuses, right? As we all know, it's very hard right now to go visit campuses. You can't take campus tours, the information sessions are canceled and things like that. So everything's moved online. It's not that it's going to stay online once the pandemic is over. We, we wanna taste and feel kind of where we're going to college. But I think much of this, especially the information sessions, which were just all of us sitting in a big room listening to somebody lecture at us at the front of it, I think most of that now will move online. Students will be able to view that before they go to campus. They're going to be able to do that in smaller cohorts and smaller venues, maybe just with students interested in their major, for example, because colleges now could put on many more of those programs. And then when you get to campus, A, you're a better consumer because you know more, and you're going to be able to... Focus your effort on the tour.
0: So the idea of being there with you is so appealing as a parent of a kid applying to college, but we can't. So can you kind of describe maybe one application? I know that you've talked about getting all the way through the process and people are in the piles. And then at the end, there may be a decision that there's too many. And now that admit pile has to be revisited. And so I think I don't know if it's painful for people to hear or if it's helpful. I found it kind of neutralizing because what you hear is that there's so many points in time where you could lose the chance to go to that school and it has very little to do with
2: you. To give you an example of what I saw in in these rooms, let me just read a couple of paragraphs from the from the book. And the first one is during early decision at Emory. And one of the admissions officers, Scott, is in, and, and, and Chris, who's his co-pilot. So they at Emory, they read in, in pairs. And they're reading a, uh, a would-be a biology major from a public school in, uh, in New York City. Scott scrolls through the recommendations of the would-be biology major. The applicant is a student at a public school in New York City where counselors carry large caseloads, which means less time for each student. The result is a fairly routine, almost form letter. The teacher recommendations provide greater information. The transcripts and test scores are remarkably similar to what they've seen so far in other files, a 3.7 GPA, a 13.70 on the SAT, five advanced placement courses. So just think about those numbers, 3.7, 13.70, five advanced placement courses. After a few more minutes, they agree it's a low admit. One of the applicant's parents went to Emory, so the teenager will get another look when the committee reviews legacy applications closer to the decision time. When she won't get in, right? So here's this is like a perfect example of what I call like an average an average student, you know, a thirteen seventy on the, on the SAT, a three point seven GPA, five advanced placement courses, right? Like this is this is many of the students that I saw. At Emory, and and even though this person has is a legacy applicant, they're not. Um, they end up not getting not getting in. The other interesting thing, and that's that's during regular decision at Emory. One other thing that happens at these selective colleges that I don't think most parents and students understand is the shaping process that happens at the very end of the admissions process. And what what's happening is in early March, right before they send out acceptances or denials to students or waitlist notices, they have to really look at who they're accepting because most of the time they have way too many students in the acceptance bin because they know, they know based on on previous experience, how many students will actually accept that acceptance. And so they don't want to over enroll the class. So the year I was at Emory, for example, they had a thousand too many students in the admin bin.
0: I just want to point out, so someone has made it all the way from the beginning of the process to the admin bin, and they're being evaluated again at that moment.
2: They're evaluated at that moment, and they're evaluated under a different criteria in many ways. They not only have to get rid of some students out of the admin bin, Sorry to put it so uh, indelicately there, but uh, they not only have to move some students out of the admit bin, but this is also the moment when they're looking at the class overall. Does it have the geographic diversity we want? Does it have the racial and ethnic diversity that we want? Does it have the gender diversity that we want, which is critically important to these schools that have way many more female applicants than they have male applicants? Do we have enough humanities majors? That's what they're looking for in the shaping process. And this is the point when they're moving people. They're not only moving people out, but they actually may be moving some people in during this this process. And they meet in these committees, based on geography. And I sat in on a couple of committees, including the Southeast Committee, which is of course where Emory's from. So let me do, let me read from the, from the book here, this description of how they shape one of these students out. A half hour into their meeting, the group lands on a file that has multiple tags. The applicant is both a legacy and a child of an Emory employee. Because Emory employees receive tuition benefits for their children, moving an applicant from admit to deny at this point in the process would come at a steep cost for a family with the child so close to the line. The applicant has strong grades and a rigorous curriculum, but the overall file was described as lackluster by the original reader with ratings of two out of a possible five for both recommendations and intellectual curiosity. I'm sure there's plenty of goodness in the file, one of the admissions officers says, but in terms of natural sciences and what we're looking at, I don't believe that this is the student. Someone else in the room pulls up the applicant's mid-year grades. They're all A's. While the student lists neuroscience as a major, there's no example of neuro in the file in terms of activities or in the essays, the admissions officer says. She suggests they move the applicant to the wait list. So anyway, they eventually move the student to the wait list. But the following week, the student lands back in the admit pile after a review of hundreds of files with special tags. Remember, she was both a legacy but the bigger point here was that her parent worked at the, uh, at the university. And so she ends up back in the admin bin a week later, and little did she know just how close she came to being in that deny bin. So one of the things that I learned in the year that I was inside admissions is that so many institutional priorities determine where you end up. Just because a college has a 25% acceptance rate doesn't mean you have a one in four chance of getting in. In many ways, that applicant's test scores and other parts of the application, as the original reader said, were lackluster. She probably should have ended up in the deny bin, but because of the institutional priority that we care about our employees' kids, she ended up in the admit bin.
1: Wow. It's so complex, right? It's so complex, and I think as a parent, of course, your focus is on your kid. And I, I listen to you and I think, yeah, yeah. I'm like, but what about my kid, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just a natural parent reaction. So as a parent, what would you tell your kids if they and I think they're a little bit younger, but if they were applying to college now, what would your advice be?
2: Try your best and let the chips fall where they may. And that may sound like just general advice, but, you know, this is an incredibly <laughs> ambiguous process that you, it's unfair. It's not a meritocracy. You know, I think you have to come in accepting that. And in many ways, I think that will lower your anxiety because you realize that so much is out of your control. So many parents and students out there are driving themselves crazy right now, for example, trying to get a test score. In a normal year, they try to take the SAT multiple times to try to raise that score 20 or 30 or 40 points because they think that one thing is going to be the difference, right? There's no one thing that makes the difference in any of these applications. And in many of these applications, it's something that's out of your control anyway. You can't suddenly, maybe you could, but you can't suddenly get a job at a university. You can't suddenly become an alum of that university to help on the legacy status, right? There are so many things that are out of your control. And so as a parent or student, I say, do what is in your control, focus on your grades, focus on the classes you're taking in high school, focus on your uh, activities. Do your best in your essay and and ask for, uh, you know, ask good people for your your recommendations and have a balanced list. Because the other thing that I think happens is that there's nothing wrong with, you know, trying to achieve your dream college. But when I look at students' lists, particularly early on in the year, they have all dream colleges on their list. And families are not being honest with themselves about where their son or daughter is going to be a good academic and social fit, but also, financially, what they can really afford.
0: Do you have compassion for admissions, the people in college admissions? Did your perspective on their job and the decisions they have to make create greater compassion for what they do?
2: I do, because they're being buffeted by so many outside forces that are really outside of their control. It's a job for them. They're working for somebody else who gives them a list of priorities every year that they want more of. They want more full-pay kids. They want more kids from the Northeast, whatever it might be. And then your job in admissions, whether you like it or not, is to fulfill those needs. And so I think most of these admissions officers get into the job because they care about students. They wanna help students. Many of them, I think, wanna help students like themselves, right? We all come to these jobs. I think most of these readers come to these jobs thinking about what they were like at 18 and how they got into college. And then they start reading these applications and they might have a soft spot for somebody they read because it is somebody just like them. But on the other side, they're being told we need more X, Y, and Z, and this student doesn't fit that profile.
0: I just want to say, when I applied to college, I filled out an application, sent it off, never thought about it, got in there, got denied, and moved on.
2: You know, so like- <laughs> I think what's important to know is that that still happens today. What we're really talking about here are highly selective colleges, or selective colleges. There are only about 200 selective colleges in the U.S., meaning they accept fewer than 50% of students who apply. The average college in the U.S. accepts 65% of students. So most colleges you're going to apply to accept everybody. Or not everybody, they accept most students. So this is really an anxiety-ridden process for those who think that going to a very highly ranked, highly selective college matters in life. And I will argue it doesn't matter as much as we think it does.
1: Jeff, we're gonna wrap up with the question we ask all of our guests. And what is the biggest parenting myth as it relates to the college admissions process?
2: That you as a parent are in control of this in any way. You can nudge your students, you can nudge your son or daughter, you could guide them. But at the end of the day, this has to be about them. This is their college experience, not your college experience. Don't use this as a way to make up for something that you felt like you wanted to do at 18. Let them control it. You should be there as an advisor, and obviously you're probably gonna end up paying the bill. But don't make it about you. It's their process.
0: Jeff Salingo, thank you so much. Next book you're on, can I be part of the process with you? Because I really love behind the scenes. Sure. Um, So thanks for being our guest, and thanks for writing Who Gets In and Why. And um, great guest.
2: Thank you, it was great to be here.
1: Thanks for joining us for Your Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Also, if you wanna receive our newsletter, head on over to yourteenmag.com. Your Teen your
0: team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael DeAloya plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Koltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the
1: episode to a friend. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.